Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. I'm always interested when a book comes across my desk that is about the brain, and especially so when it's written by a science writer that I trust. So I have to say, I was really excited when Emily Willingham's new book, The Tailored Brain, was sent to me. Emily is a journalist and science writer. She's the author of previous books, including Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis. And she also co-authored The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. But she's a regular contributor to Scientific American and other publications. We've all come across the latest gimmicky interventions that are supposed to make us smarter, make us feel better, just improve our lives. People talk about microdosing hallucinogens or taking stimulant drugs, even using stimulation to boost brain performance. But so often, the promise of these interventions falls flat. But what if we're actually thinking about the problem the wrong way? What if instead of seeking out the perfect true brain, we should just be thinking about what are the kinds of minor tweaks that our own brains might benefit from? That's exactly the approach that Emily takes. Emily Willingham, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I loved uh, on your book jacket how you sort of approach the brain like a tailor, that we should take the measure of our mind's contours and personalize alterations to suit it. That's just such a beautiful metaphor. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? I came to this with a sensibility that I've had for a long time that, I don't know, like, Sociocultural expectations are always oh to the you know to the norm. Things need to be normal. Is this normal? And I've never held that that was especially interesting or useful. And so one of the reasons this the the title of the book has tailoring in it is because we all have unique needs when it comes to what we expect from our own brains. And I think it's important to come at the question of, well, what do I need to tailor? Not from the perspective necessarily of what society is telling you, but from how you feel about it yourself. One part of this was, let's take a look at ourselves and see really what we think is 
needs addressing versus what others are telling us needs addressing. And I think that really resonates with a lot of us uh, who are parents in this modern age. And one of your previous books, um, The Informed Parent Science-Based Resource for Your Child's First Four Years, I think really speaks to the fact that there is so much out there that is not science-based, but also that, you know, we come at whatever it is we're doing with the expectations that either have been built into us by, you know, how we grew up or like how far away we want to go from where we grew up, you know, sort of like, (laughs) you know, rebelling against the way that we grew up. And that it is true that we, you know, we're kind of moving away from this idea that there is a normal brain. And then if your brain is abnormal, you need to do the things that will push it closer to normal. Um, (laughs) (laughs) whatever, even though normal might not be optimal for you. so Or is just a setting on a dryer, right? I mean, what is normal anyway? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so... So I really want to get into um, some of the details of of sort of how you're thinking about what these different tailoring tools might be and how we might use them. But I think first we need to kind of get a sense of sort of what are the kind of ways in which our brains function that are the same across different situations. Because of course, like, you know, we often find ourselves in a particular situation and our brain, you know, does something or doesn't do something. But then there are these, and and those are the kinds of things that become hard to change because they, they feel situational. But then there are some things that seem to kind of come across. And that's sort of where I think the sense of the normal brain or like IQ or other kind of measures of brain function, you know, we're, we're designed to try to show us, right? Like, yeah, like, is your reaction to whatever's happening to you disordered? Or is it, you know, something that can be expected? So, so one of the that was a really long preamble to sort of ask you to talk about (laughs) something that we actually haven't covered a lot on this podcast, and that often is left out of the conversation, although it's becoming more and more popular, which is the default mode network. So tell us a little bit about the default mode network and how we can use that information to sort of think about how our own brains are working. Sure. Yeah. So one thing I would like to say about the default mode network is, first of all, the name is terrible and boring and hard to remember, but it is what it is and everybody uses it now. And second, this is kind of um, central to what this network does. It's kind of foregrounded as the network that everybody talks about, which kind of illustrates its function almost. It's a very kind of self-oriented network, but there are others that I talk about in the book and that people have identified um, in our brains that are also important. <laughs> but um, the reason this one gets to be, I don't know, so centered is because it's kind of, our, it's a, it does a lot. It defines us from other people. And I mean, it, let me back up a little bit first. It is a hypothesized network. There's a lot of studies have sort of reconfirmed that it exists. And by network, we mean that it's, you know, this this set of nodes that actually goes across the brain, inter- interconnected across the brain um, that communicate with each other. And, you know, if it's like working like it quote unquote should be, then we're kind of in a balance between like who, how we see ourselves versus the rest of the world. It has a role in how we interact socially and kind of our social cognition and how we think socially. When it 
gets a little too loud, we it can tend to focus us too much on ourselves, a little too internally focused. Um, things that like words that are used around this are things like rumination, where I'm sure a lot of people listening to this can understand this cycle. You something like twigs you like you think oh i remember back in fifth grade when i did this thing and then you start to feel bad about yourself and then you start to think about all the other times that some other similar thing or you know adjacent to that kind of scenario happened and then you just start to feel worse and worse and worse about yourself and that is kind of a negative rumination and it's linked with the, the activity of this network so, and let's just back up though and say, like, how do we know this network exists? The identification of it was um, a long, a big, almost two decades ago now. What is time? Um, 25 <laughs> years ago, 26 years ago. And this is imaging studies, uh, especially imaging studies kind of showing the delivery of like blood and oxygen to the brain in real time, identifying that when people were supposed to be, quote unquote, working on a task versus when they weren't. And um, when they were just lying around thinking about allegedly nothing, which of course isn't really possible, the researchers started to notice that there was this kind of like signal in this 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 series of nodes that were seemed to be working together when we weren't working on anything in particular. And that's where it got its terrible name because it was kind of when you're in the default mode, this network is supposed to be active. It turns out it's really busy doing a lot of things. It's not just like, ooh, I'm thinking about nothing or I've achieved Nirvana network. It's very busy all the time. And so after that initial identification using imaging. There have been lots and lots of studies since then looking at, you know, how this network operates and people who have different conditions that are related to mental health or, you know, development and people who have uh, experienced strokes and things like that. What happens when you take psychedelics? So this network has really gotten a lot of focus. I mean, so for so long, we've um, known that the vast majority of what our brains does is not available to us consciously, right? Like there's like the tip of the iceberg, which is consciousness, and then there's all this other stuff. And I feel like in some ways, the default mode network starts to kind of begin to bridge that gap. Like if we start to think about like, when you're not fully in the state of meta awareness, like, like consciousness is a series of different stages or levels. It's not just binary, but like, you know, if you're not like thinking about how you're thinking <laughs> um, and your brain is kind of just doing its thing, um, there are these parts of the of the network that kind of percolate up into consciousness. And, and but also that I think that there's this idea that like just how that network is built up and how it's active will influence so much of our the rest of our behavior. Yeah, I think those things are definitely interlinked. And there does seem to be this kind of triad of networks. There's a network that they call the salience network, which means that you, you click onto things that are important, that are salient, and, and amidst, you know, the just tsunami of sensory information around us and in us at all times. And then our executive kind of executive function network. And these three things, these three networks don't typically like work in the same direction together. And so I'm based on what, you know, the research seems to suggest. And so when we're internally focused and we're in that cascade of just like self-oriented rumination, for example, obviously our attention is not externalized and we're not checking in to what is salient around us. But if we click out of that and like you hear a loud noise and you click out of that, your salience network is going, that was a loud noise. You need to stop thinking about yourself for just a minute and go see what that was. 
Yeah. So tell us a little bit about like what you've learned about how we might be able to tweak the default mode network and why we might want to do that. I like to use these networks, whether they ultimately are established as genuine networks or not. I think they're a good shorthand for just thinking about how we think about ourselves. And like I've said, the default mode network seems to be when we're internally focused and thinking about ourselves a lot. Like I said, also, though, it serves purposes like for social understanding. Um, If we can understand ourselves, that helps us start to work on understanding other people. So it has a utility and it's not necessarily so much that we need to I can, you know, like reconfigure the default mode network as it is we need to make it shut up sometimes. <laughs> and so there are a few practices, evidence-based practices that I found that are beautifully accessible that we can use to kind of dial that thing back when it's becoming almost disablingly obnoxious for us. So that's what one of the things that I discuss in the book is those accessible ways of doing that. Yeah. One of the things that um, people should know about your book is that it ends with like a little checklist at the end of every chapter (laughs) to make sure you like hit the right points, but also kind of as an action item. I think of it as like these are the follow ups. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's funny because you can read them and you think, well, that was self-evident. But the thing is, is the checklists themselves are derived from the only things I found that really do have a solid evidence base um, based on my really, really extensive review of the literature. So the good news is, yes, they kind of can be intuitive. But the other good news is that we can access them and there really is a genuine evidence base for them. And that's the thing that we should also note is that like, you know, a lot of people might read criticisms of the whole approach of these this this network approach and probably the most famous questioning of the methods used to define these networks was the case of the salmon in the scanner. The fish. (laughs) Yes. Tell us about the fish. Oh my gosh, the salmon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this was so terrible. I did ask, I asked some, some MRI experts about this, but so this, this references um, functional MRI. And so your listeners probably know what MRI is, but you know, it's magnetic resonance and it scans soft tissues really well. So you get beautiful images of brain structure and then you add in this functional part and that also shows the brain structure and, and inferred functional changes in real time, which is really nice, right? But you, you have to control for a lot of things and deal with a lot of noise because the brain is a really noisy organ. And so one of the (laughs) illustrations of why you need to do this very carefully is because researchers did, in fact, put a dead salmon and um, subject it to uh, functional MRI. And because they did not do all the controls that you need for the noise from functional MRI, um, (laughs) the results that they got suggested that the dead fish was on task. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. Based on the MRI findings. And of course, it's a fish, so it was not. <laughs> um, so that that being said, that we should not throw away all of the neuroimaging data, but to recognize that people who are doing neuroimaging are mindful of, you know, these the, the mistakes that we've made in the past and, you know, are working to change that. Yeah. I mean, we're coming up where that was like, what, that was um, 12 years ago. And I mean, people are aware <laughs> that, you know, they're, they need to do things to control so that they don't end up with the dead salmon-like results. Exactly. So one of the other things I really liked about um, how, you know, you, that you approached in your book that 
uh, I think so many people are not aware of is like we tend to think of a particular cognitive skill like memory, for example, or even attention as being independent of others. And so people might say like, well, I just have a bad memory and I want to find a way to like improve my memory. And you rightly point out that the pathway to memory is through attention. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I wanted to like talk a little bit about that and have you sort of explain sort of it doesn't really make sense if you're thinking about tailoring your brain to focus simply on one particular cognitive skill, even though a lot of the tools out there purport to kind of, you know, have this very specific effect. Yeah, a lot of the um, things out there that sort of promise to do you know, this for your memory or this for your, I guess, your IQ or whatever. Um, the issue with them is that they don't have what are called far transfer effects. Like if you do like crossword puzzles a lot, you get better at doing crossword puzzles. That's a near transfer, but you don't necessarily become like smarter <laughs> or even have a better memory. You just now know that if it mentions a sandwich cookie, that the word you're looking for is Oreo. Like you learn that, right? If <laughs> <laughs> you do New York Times crossword enough. So there, there is this aspect of these are independent kind of facets of what our brains do. But there's also the idea of the brain as a sort of ecosystem. These, this is not separate strands of computation that this very organic thing in our heads is engaged in. All of these things kind of interact with each other. And so if one is kind of, is, is doing its job in sort of a typical way, then the implication is that the others probably are as well. I would say that the thing is that you kind of grow up with those things, doing that in this kind of intricate dance with each other, that these aspects all develop together, kind of interacting with each other that way. And that perhaps after the developmental window for that sort of thing is closing or as it's closing, maybe they don't do that as much anymore, which perhaps is why it's a little harder for us to, you know, get better at things as we get older. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So there are some tools that um, I think are pretty prevalent, not only among undergraduates, as you point out, but as uh, actually made some headlines recently among psychology professors. 
and those who study the mind, which is to take some pills. Um, so tell us a little bit about these kinds of neuro enhancers, especially, well, tell us about the two that you fo- kind of focus on. Which ones are you referencing there? I'm sorry. Um, Ritalin <laughs> and Provigil. Okay. Yeah. So if you take things like that, which of course are intended for people who have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, if you take these drugs that are intended to improve your focus, you might experience improved focus transiently as far as durability, as they discuss, you know, that is questionable. And it's not expected that with that improvement in focus that you're going to have these far transfer effects and suddenly become like much smarter and things like that. It's just in the immediate period that you'd experience that. And when we see that when people who take those therapeutically, right, when they're prescribed, when they stop taking them, like I know children at least used to take like the summer off from taking their ADHD medications and the effects of them wane, they wear off. And so this isn't creating, you know, any kind of permanent state (laughs) transition for people when they take them. I mean, so, but let's talk a little bit more about that because I think a lot of people might be curious about it and it does seem like it's something that's become more and more popular. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of how generally how do they work and what are the expectations of a person say who does not i mean so from my understanding of ADHD is that there's a there's a problem with understimulation right that there's like you know if their brains essentially they 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 seek out sort of things that will give them a, a sort of a better feeling in the brain i don't want to say necessarily reward but that sort of seems like what it is well, tell me, cor- it, correct me. I'm, I'm, you know. Well, no, I just, I mean, ADHD is such a mixed thing for people because I mean, it carries all aspects of what's in that term, right? The people who have attention deficit also can be very focused on something to the exclusion of attention to other salient things around them, right? So it's kind of, it just kind of depends on their situation and the way these drugs are supposed to operate is, is that it's paradoxical because for a lot of people who don't have this kind of attentional situation, these drugs would make them hyper, <laughs> right? And, but this is kind of on the other side of the effects curve for people who have attention deficit conditions, and it tends to kind of calm them and let them be more f- focused, but not in a way that they're either so focused they exclude everything in the environment or so unfocused that they can't decide what's important in the environment around them. Yeah, I mean, the reason they, they would make someone whose brain is, uh, again, trying to avoid saying typical or normal or, you know, not, I, you know. I use, a, I use atypical or, you know, neurodiverse. Right, but so neurotypical. So a neurotypical right. person who takes takes Ritalin, for example, might get a boost of energy because it is a stimulant. Yeah. And so a person who is neuroatypical um, and, you know, has the the label or the diagnosis or just whose brain um, seems to function in the same way as other people who have attention deficit disorder, you know, the idea is that they're chronically understimulated. So taking a stimulant kind of brings them up to this kind of baseline of activity that matches those around us. Is that like an, an a, like a decent representation of of what the literature says? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's fine. I think the internal experience of people who have them probably is variable um, in terms of responding to the drugs. And I know that some people who have ADHD, they feel almost zombified by the drugs. And so it's almost like the arousal is subdued for them. I think it probably just varies with 
I will say that I didn't really write a lot about these things in the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're right. Um, yeah. And I don't have a lot of ADHD. I mean, I used to write about ADHD all the time, but I don't have a lot of the um, pharmacology stuff in the book or to recent hand. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll, 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 I'll let it go then. I was just, it was like a part that like... No, I love this discussion. I love thinking about these things. I know that so in the book I write, I briefly mention, you know, those two drugs that are usually prescribed for ADHD, but that, you know, students are taking because they want to at least have focus in terms for studying and for taking tests and that kind of thing. And then I mentioned that, you know, caffeine has a very similar mm-hmm. effect because all of these are stimulants and that's just the effect that stimulants to a certain level can have on you. And if you tilt over that, obviously, you know, you reach like you're a little too, your high, state is too high arousal and you, you know, are a little too stimulated. It's not that helpful. And it just, yeah, just like... Like to me, you know, when I think about tailoring my brain, there is like the stuff I can do in terms of what I can learn or, you know, play a game or whatever. And then there's like the stuff I can take. <laughs> or and eat. there are the pills you can take. Right. And so what I tried to do in this book or what my focus was in this book was not so much prescription drugs because I'm not a clinician. And I feel like there were a lot of books written about those. So I did in the depression chapter, the mood chapter, talk about ketamine, especially because people have to jump through so many hoops before they get to what sounds like a pretty effective therapy for themselves, for mood. But I will say back to the question of these stimulants, there has been some head-to-head comparison of Ritalin and Provigil to caffeine, and caffeine works fine. (laughs) So if you're looking for things that you can access, you know, have some coffee. (laughs) Yeah. It has antioxidant properties that can make you live. (laughs) No coffee. (laughs) All right. So speaking of um, other things that you can drink and eat, uh, you do briefly also mention the keto diet, which um, has been kind of, you know, people really point to it. Out of all of the diets, I think that are popular, the keto one seems to be the one that constantly comes up when people are talking about the brain effects. So tell us a little bit about the, the keto diet and, and why people in particular think that it affects your brain. Keto is just such a buzzword now. And there's so many diets out there that people call ketogenic, you know, but um, the first kind of recorded use of the one I'm aware of anyway, of this kind of diet where you sort of cut out things that are carbohydrate based or simple sugars is thousands of years ago. I think the Greeks, it was realized that for people who were having seizures, if they cut back on those things and focus more on protein and fat, that their seizure activity was less. And for people with intractable seizures within, you know, intractable epilepsy, there is a specific diet. It's a keto diet that can be prescribed for them that is supposed to have efficacy that way. So you think about what seizures are, and it's this kind of chaotic brainwaves that you can register on an EEG. And you have this kind of balance between these two neurotransmitters, which one of them is GABA and the other is glutamine. And the GABA neurotransmitter is the kind of the one that's like, okay, everybody calm down here. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) And glutamine is the one. (laughs) Yes. Take it easy. (laughs) Relax. And glutamine is the one that's like, well, ah, you know, turn this on, turn this on, (laughs) flip on all the switches. And there's some hints that a ketogenic diet kind of lifts up the one that calms things down. So it boosts this this GABA in the brain, which is you know a signaling molecule in the brain that says, okay, everybody, just lower the lights and get into a soft mood. And it um, dampens the one, the glutamine, <laughs> that kind of sets things off. But that's it. And the thing is, is that, again, 
keto is a big bucket term for a lot of different things. And I think people do try these diets with that name on it for many reasons that have nothing to do with, well, could I dampen my anxiety a little bit? Could I kick up the scaba, feel a little less, you know, edgy about things? And instead they, it's for all kinds of other reasons that largely aren't Born out either. So I'm a little still sketchy on the keto thing. And as you point out in your book, you know, diets are hard to stick to. And it's really hard to do research on the effects of food on anything. um, Because, you know, people have to eat. So it's not like you can just fully restrict. Um, And it's messy. And it's messy. It's hard to get them to, you know, be honest even about what it is that they're eating or not eating, etc. And as you as you say, you know, people who are using the keto diet, say, to help with their seizures, literally work with a nutritionist who tells them exactly what to eat. <laughs> exactly. And that, that you know, I mean, we, that we've seen that that works, but that's very controlled. Very controlled. And like I said, this is just kind of this willy-nilly. I know, I know people who write about keto and have diets and use them and they really like them. They don't view that as willy-nilly. But when you take a step back and look at this broad landscape that people call keto, it's, it's a hodgepodge. So one of the things that um, permeates throughout your book that I wanted to talk about next is the f- this idea that our brains are social and that often when we think about tailoring our brains or improving our brains, it feels like something that we're doing individually and we're doing it to ourselves. But instead, you know, you really emphasize the fact that the brain is part of a network of other brains. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about this kind of social brain approach that you took and why we need to consider it. One of the reasons I wanted to write this book, among a few of them, is that I'm always struck by the fact that when you, we, I think our conversation to this point has kind of been this way as well, that when we talk about brain improvement, we're always talking about just the one brain, right? What can I do for this one brain to make it feel better? But I mean, unless you really do live alone and never encounter other people or engage with them at all, you are not just one brain. We are a social species. We're shaped by evolution to interact socially for the sake of the species. And so, you know, that our brains are kind of configured for those processes. And so in writing this book, I did take a social perspective on it and try to think, well, you know, if you do this to your brain, how is this working with other people around you and vice versa? And in the process of that, incorporating this idea that, yes, there are pills that usually don't keep their promises. There are diets that ditto. But what gives you this kind of similar feeling of I'm focused or I'm lifting a cognitive burden or, you know, I just feel so much better now. And one of those things that does that for you, if you're lucky enough, is that you have someone close to you with whom you share these things with whom you can pay attention to their issues as well. And you can get in one another's shoes and take perspective and do all of these things that are key features of a social brain. That's a thread through the whole book. Yeah. And I and I think like, you know, it made me wonder whether it was at all influenced by lockdowns and the COVID pandemic where <laughs> we all kind of realize... Like, it's exhausting to be alone, you know, or shut up with with just a small group of little people um, and do everything on Zoom and all of that. Like, it just really, you know, even though there are lots of benefits to working from home and those of us that can are very fortunate. And of course, there are a lot of people who benefit, especially people who, you know, are more neurodivergent than others. 
But at the same time, I think that there is also something that we, at least certainly me, underestimated about just the energizing effect of like going into a room with other people and even working alongside, even if you're not on the same team. Right. Yeah, I actually came out, I'm just pleased to say I came up with this before the pandemic. And then I was writing all of this during the pandemic. And I really started. And you were right every moment. And I was, first of all, I felt like, yes, nailed it. But second of all, I was like, this is so helpful to me right now. (laughs) Just writing this book during this pandemic has been personally extremely helpful for me because I was learning as I went because I'm going into this kind of agnostically looking at the evidence and then coming away with these things. I'm like, man, I can do these things. I don't have to go anywhere to buy anything. I can do these things. And one of those things is, you know, your people. It doesn't even have to be very many. I'm not an extrovert. I'm not somebody who goes somewhere and draws energy from being around other people. But I have my beloveds. I have my people. And we have this interaction where we leave one another's cognitive burdens. And we work together to lower our stresses. And we do this while we walk. And we do this if we eat together, you know, and things like that. Uh, learning all of that through this pandemic was, it was almost like taking a pill. (laughs) That kind of pill you want to do that for you, you know? Yeah. So I want to remind our listeners that Emily Willingham's book, From Ketamine to Keto to Companionship, A User's Guide to Feeling Better and Thinking Smarter, The Tailored Brain, is available booksellers everywhere. And I just want to say that I think too, you know, for so many of us, I think the pandemic unearthed things about our brains brought it into our consciousness or into the light that we just weren't aware of. I mean, my husband and I were just talking yesterday about sometimes like we just all of a sudden find ourselves deep in this feeling of dread and hopelessness. And, you know, those capacities were always there before the pandemic. The pandemic just made them so much more obvious. Yes, it right. It, the, the pandemic wrote those large and I would find myself sitting in my living room just sinking into this abyss of just like, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, you know, everything that's going around on in the world with the politics and the divisions and this disease and how all of these things were on a big tangle and I would get into just this like spin, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I learned writing this book was how to click out of that and to just do like, okay, you've got to stop the rumination. You have to shut up your DM in and click back into this moment. Look where you are. Look around at just like just the objects in the room and just think right now where you are is in this moment. You're alive. You're here. You are doing all right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as, good as, as good as you could get it, right? You're right. doing all right. Yeah, it might might not be what you expect to be tomorrow, but it's going to be okay. And but this is now. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so delighted that we're starting to understand and bring in this this conversation of, you know, these, these networks and the way that our, our brains kind of function. And we're kind of moving away from this idea that, you know, we are just beholden to how our brains have developed and more towards... But, you know, even a simple change can have a pretty profound effect in the moment, at least. Yes, it was. It it has been extremely useful to me. I use it every day. Well, Emily, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. That was a fun conversation. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, 
Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Master, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.